Hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I am excited to introduce my special guest to you. His name is Nicholas Quint. Nick, how are you doing today, sir? I'm wonderful, sir. It's been a wonderful day, and it's only about to get more wonderful. Thank you for having me on. Hey, I really uh, appreciate uh, you taking the time out of your day to do this and come on. I'm excited to interview. I heard you uh, interview you. I heard you over on uh, Braxton Hunter's uh, podcast. Uh, um, I think you've been on there a couple of times, actually, uh, discussing this topic of uh, egalitarianism and complementarianism, uh, that sort of stuff. And so uh, I heard you give an argument kind of uh, for egalitarianism over on his uh, podcast. And I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. It's more complementarian and stuff like that. But I always like to hear uh, different perspectives and things, and this is uh, actually uh, a uh, topic that I'm really not uh, dogmatic about, and I don't, uh, I'm, I'm actually kind of ignorant on it, if I'm just being honest, and so I'm, I'm really excited to have you on, um, but uh, for those who may not be familiar with who you are, uh, I thought it might be helpful to give a brief introduction. Yeah, for sure. I'm, uh, well, I'm an associate pastor at uh, the First Baptist Church of Redlands, California. Uh, for those that don't know where Redlands is, Redlands is about, an, well, okay, if you include LA traffic, it's about an hour and a half to two hours east of Los Angeles, uh, right before you hit kind of the barren desert on the drive to Phoenix. And so we're about four hours from Phoenix and about two hours from Los Angeles, kind of the very end of civilization. So uh, <laughs> at the uh, uh, so I serve as uh, associate pastor at the First Baptist Church. I uh, work in spiritual formation, teaching, occasional preaching, uh, program coordination. So, you know, teaching Bible classes, um, stuff like that. We're going through Mark right now is one going through, uh, Christ finding Christ in the Psalms. So intertextuality and all that sort of stuff. Been there for about, uh, about a year and a half coming up. Yeah. About a year and a half. And, uh, some background, I did my undergrad at Biola university. I, uh, my major was in screenwriting. Actually, I didn't want to be a theologian or a pastor, um, and, uh, but with Biola, it's similar to a lot of, well, actually, I don't know if it's similar to a lot of universities. What we do at Biola is you get a minor in Bible. So you take an extra, I think it's 30, 30 units, so 10 classes in Bible. So it's a required minor. So I took 10 classes in Bible. So I have a minor in theology. Uh, didn't want to do that. Wanted to be a screenwriter, wanted to do film and then met a girl and she's a big theology geek. And we talked and I fell head <laughs> over heels and soon, sooner or later, I was just like, you know what? This this theology thing is something that touches my my heart. And I want to study and I want to learn. And uh, was raised in the church, although I didn't really I wouldn't call myself a Christian until I was probably about eighteen um, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. So, got married, did the whole thing. Uh, went to Fuller Theological Seminary where I did my master's in New Testament studies, um, and published a few things here and there. I've got a book I'm working on right now. I'll be copy editing it uh, as soon as this is done. Uh, so it's yeah it's. I'm a theology geek, a pastor. I mean, I just got home from preaching at Vespers, which is uh, a lot of our uh, uh, elderly congregants at that church uh, live in a retirement community. And I was there preaching on uh, the Gospel of John and the light and the darkness and how that impacts our lives and how we live and stuff like that. So I wanted to be an academic theologian after Fuller, but then I realized, well, if you're not grounded in the church, if you don't care about the, the church, then all your scholarship is essentially an act of narcissism because it's for yourself. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to do theology right, I have to do theology with and for the church. And that, of course, you know, stumbling along and trying to figure it all out. But ultimately, if uh, at least my theological outlook is if someone can't worship God better after reading something I write or something I preach or whatever, then 
seems like it's a waste of time. Sure. Yeah. And, th and thanks for sharing. That's a really awesome story. Um, now, you said that uh, you're the associate pastor at a First Baptist Church. And so, as I mentioned, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, which is uh, almost exclusively complementarian. Yep. Um, but but here you are, egalitarian, serving at a First Baptist Church. And uh, we were talking beforehand, and we were talking about the distinctives between the American Baptists and the Southern Baptist uh, mm -hmm. conventions. But uh, maybe you could share a little bit about that uh, for the audience. Sure. Uh, American Baptist Church is, uh, uh, well, I should say American Baptist Church is USA. Our, um, we are the most politically, theologically, and racially diverse denomination in the United States. And so 1.3 million members or so. Um, you go into any American Baptist Church, you'll find the, to the most extreme literalist, to the most you know progressive progressively minded, it's we're united around a common creed, you know, basically Baptist principles and uh, all that sort of stuff, and the belief, of course, that Jesus is Lord and stuff like that. And we're united more on mission than we are on what many would term uh, secondary issues in theology. So uh, I, I've not been to an American Baptist church that was uh, uniform theologically or politically. Uh, but what American Baptist churches tend to do really well is emphasize unity over uniformity. And so yeah. we're united in our essentials, our belief in soul liberty, our belief in respect of neighbor when it comes to, say, politics and stuff like that. Um, and our denomination historically and via our legacy is egalitarian. Um, that doesn't mean every church is because, you know, as Baptists, we believe in the autonomy of the local church. We believe in uh, soul liberty, that you have the right to read scripture uh, in, co in conversation with the greatest traditions of the Christian faith and all that, not in separation from, but ultimately um, we don't have a pope. And so what you read right. in scripture is, you know, is not necessarily that it's your own, but it's something that you are permitted to exercise your cognitive capacity to read and understand and reflect and stuff like that. And so uh, I would say a general consensus of American Baptists is that we are egalitarian. How that works in function and practice really depends on the autonomy of the local church. But our church is egalitarian and I serve under a female senior pastor who's pretty awesome. So. Well, it's really great, and uh, I think it sounds beautiful. Sounds like a, a beautiful portrait of the kingdom of God uh, here on earth, and so that's uh, very encouraging to hear. Now, you are—you seem like quite a busy man. You're you're working on a PhD. You work at a, a local church full time, and uh, you do at least two podcasts, right? Three podcasts now. Three podcasts. Yes, so was, I missed one. It was two podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about this. Uh, the most uh, man-centered theology podcast on the internet. Um, tell us about. Tell us about this one. What was it called? The Synergist podcast. The Synergist spelled the Sinner way. S I N versus uh, S Y N. Yeah. Uh, that was came about as a joke. I texted a friend of mine who's uh, I think he's uh, it's Church of God, but he's essentially a Wesleyan, and he's in Indiana. And I texted him, or not text, I messaged him or whatever, and I was like, you know what, I'm really sick, and I'm not a Calvinist. Now, uh, most of my friends are Calvinists. I have nothing against them personally. I love them to death. I love arguing with them. But I was like, you know, I'm kind of sick of hearing the whole, you know, your man-centered thing. When, if you read John Wesley, you listen to Charles Wesley's hymns. I mean, I just sang Charles Wesley's hymn uh, at, at Vespers. Thoroughly drenched in Scripture and saturated with the love of God and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, you know, agree to disagree on other things, but the whole charge of the most man-centered theology was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of sick of that. And so him and I conspired together <laughs> to create a podcast that wasn't uh, focused on rebutting Calvinists. I figure that's just too easy. And I, I don't like podcasts that essentially function, that ex essentially exist in a vacuum of response. I don't sure. think that's interesting. And so our goal was to articulate a positive 
Christian vision for discipleship and theology. And so you won't find us, for example, talking about how dumb Calvinists are, but you'll see us going like, all right, let's talk about um, faith in the Gospels. What does faith mean? And um, does this faith work better under a synergistic or a monergistic paradigm or a Calvinist or a reform paradigm or a Wesleyan paradigm? You know, and our conclusions are thoroughly Wesleyan and Arminian and all that sort of stuff. But rather than being like, and the Calvinists are wrong, we're saying, here's why we're right versus here's why they're wrong. And so um, we're in a series right now where we're that we've called a Christian theology, not the Christian theology or Christian theology, but a Christian theology, yeah. trying to have kind of an open posture in the formulation of Christian theology. So we're going through Christology and Revelation right now, and we are long overdue for a podcast. We really need to do more of that. Well, when you're running three podcasts, you got to get behind at some point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we got 27 episodes out. I'm fine with that, but it's like, we really need to do more stuff. And we interview a few folks like you're interviewing me. We've interviewed, um, Matthew Bates was one. Um, We had him on and that was a great, great interview. We've had Bruxy KV on, who's a personal friend of mine. Uh, I'm, uh, I don't know if I can mention this, but I'll I'll just do it anyway. Uh, I don't know if you know Nidje Gupta. He's a seminary professor in portland at uh at uh portland seminary he's doing a major work on paul in the language of faith a major monograph and so i'll be we'll be interviewing him probably in the next few months whenever i get the book to read it and then interview him um and so yeah it's it's the whole idea is not deconstructing faith but constructing faith because i think without i think ultimately uh, deconstructing something is meaningless unless you have a positive vision for how to build it back up and live in a life of transformation and discipleship sure and so that's kind of the goal. We need yeah, to do more. So, so. Yeah, so definitely get subscribed to uh, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet. And then also tell us, uh, we are actually going to get to the topic of discussion today, but I want to hear about this uh, split uh, frame of reference podcast as well. Yeah, the split frame of reference podcast. That's my wife and I. Um, what we've done was we didn't find, it was hard for us to find um well, two things. My wife is doing her PhD right now at the University of Aberdeen, and she's doing work on Eve Christology instead of, you know, Adam Christology and all that. So she's doing work in Eve Christology, and that means reading the pastoral epistles, Romans 5, and the Adamic references in there, and how that all works with Paul's theology of power and body and stuff. So it's an integration of systematics and New Testament, and she's brilliant. Um, so she's working on... <laughs> She's working on that right now, and we we were conversant with all the major literature from you know complementarian, egalitarian, but also you know secular scholarship and more um, interdisciplinary stuff. And we're like, you know what? There's just a lot of material that people just don't have time to read, or um, they're not trained in how to read it. And that goes for every, you know not everyone's trained to open up you know um, this yeah and just be able to read it. And you know it's it's daunting to have a 600 page book you know put in front of you. Um, and it's often easier just to go, here's kind of, and so the goal is um, breaking down uh, the gender texts uh, in Scripture, but not just the gender texts, but wider theological themes. You know, prophecy, for example, how do we understand prophecy in women and men? Excuse me. How do we understand body and glory and stuff like that? So um, each episode usually focuses on a specific passage of Scripture. You know, we've done ones on 1 Timothy and Genesis. Um, we really need to do more stuff on Old Testament, but my expertise is not in, New, in Old Testament. But um, So it's basically a, an attempt to offer egalitarian scholarship that's reverent of Scripture and conversant with scholarship in a way that everyone can at least hear it and understand. I mean, I've had complementarians, and this is what warms my heart a lot, is they'll say, you know, I didn't feel attacked, and we really appreciated the pushback and the insights, and we learned. 
Yeah. doesn't mean they agreed with me. I mean, ultimately, I'd love everyone to agree with me on every single thing, but that's just not how life works. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's been something. I mean, I got a friend out of it. A friend, uh, someone e- uh, emailed me and basically a big old rant about, you know, blah, 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 women in ministry. And a month later, we're like best friends talking on the phone about it, you know, and so. <laughs> yeah, and it's so funny that, how that works out. Right? Uh, yeah, so get subscribed to that one as well. Uh Speaking of egalitarianism, let's actually get to the topic of uh, discussion today. Um, but uh, before I, I want to turn to some scriptures that uh, kind of bring this up. But uh, before we do that, uh, maybe you could kind of introduce the subject between complementarianism, egalitarianism, maybe define both, and kind sure. of what the conversation uh, or debate is about. Yeah, and it really um, depends on who you're talking to, right? Um, there are some complementarians that do see it in terms of power, of equality, and some egalitarians do see it in terms of the conversation of equality, and that usually has uh, political overtones, right? So political equality, it's usually, and it's, and that conversation usually gets a little more uh, complicated because you're there's uh, the assumption of social equality and paradigms like that that are being kind of brought yeah. in, and that's usually where debate is. But we're not really talking about that. Uh, but that's just something to, worth mentioning. Um, Complementarianism, broadly defined, is the belief that men and women are equal uh, before God in terms of dignity, in terms of salvation, in terms of worth. Um, who they are as men and women together. Uh, the I've heard N.T. Wright describe it as, he, he is not a complementarian, but he used the phrase of, everything is level at the foot of the cross, right? Mm-hmm. Men and women together. Um, the difference is uh, with complementarianism is, the and the egalitarians and complementarians agree on that part. Yeah. Uh, the distinction then become, or the difference becomes when complementarians believe that uh, the woman is, we would say, uh, they would say probably depending on the language. I'm not trying to misrepresent, but the language I hear used most common, most commonly used is the belief that unequal in role, right, or something like that. Yeah, like equal so, in value, uh, but uh, different in. Um... Yeah, role or something like that. Yeah, that's that's yeah. that's generally how I've always heard it uh, put. And I grew up, like I said, in the Southern Baptist churches and things like that, and I've served in Southern Baptist churches. And so, I I don't know if I've ever even met somebody uh, that's egalitarian from from like my church circles. So this is, but this is a, a, a I would say a. a a uh, generous way of describing of you that you don't uh, hold to. This is actually how I have heard it put uh, from complementarians themselves. That's good to hear. Um, and there's an additional element also of, um, and the, and there are distinctions to be made too as well. Are we talking home and church? Are they separate? Because you do have people um, that are egalitarian in the church, meaning women can be pastors, priests, right. deacons across the board, but complementarian in the home. Um, one of Allison's professors at TED's, where she did her MDiv, believed that. I don't know if he still believes that. I think he's egalitarian both in church and home. But he had no problem with women pastors, but had issues with women uh, and, and or husbands and wives in terms of yeah. hierarchy right huh. there. Yeah, I never would have thought about that. Yeah, that's interesting. And so, and so there, that is additional part of it. But usually what's behind it is the, is the belief that gender um, dictates function, right? So, for example, you have yep. the idea that um, because you are a woman— um, and the reasoning does differ. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to give the reasoning cause there's numerous ways to give the reasoning sure. for it, but they do that because you're a woman. Therefore there are certain roles in church or in the home that, um, you are, uh, for some would say prohibited or restricted from participating in or something like that. Yeah. Um, and that can be of course teased out more, but that's kind of the idea that we're talking about 
uh, again, as we mentioned, the unequal and in, 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 uh, raw, equal in value. Yeah, let me, and, uh, I just wanted to interject real quick, sorry. Please. Because yeah. uh, you're saying it gets teased out a little bit different. One thing that always confused me growing up, um, even like as a kid, was that you would often see, even in these Southern Baptist churches that are uh, you know, almost exclusively uh, complementarian, that there would be uh, female leadership at some level. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like uh, I, my mother-in-law was uh, the children's pastor or the children's minister. But, you know, often they'll uh, – and, and sorry, I'm not making fun of anybody. But uh, they'll change the title a little bit to children's director instead yep. of like whenever I was a children's pastor, I was the children's pastor. Uh, yep. But uh, the woman who preceded me in that role was the children's director. And so uh, it's just a, a weird thing that you notice uh, growing up that uh, – yeah, it gets teased out uh, weird or uh, different in different circles. But yeah, go ahead, continue. No, yeah, and and that's something to be said too. There are complementarian churches where women do literally everything except give the sermon, for example. Yeah, right. Um, and there are complementarian churches that you know I grew up in Calvary Chapel, which is a I would say a largely Southern California phenomena. Um, it's it's a charismatic. Um, it, basically, it's Baptistical, for lack of a better word, but tie in <laughs> hardcore dispensationalism too. Yeah. Um, and that sort of stuff. So very, and I don't like the word conservative because that, that means a lot. I, ter- I read the Bible in a very conservative way, you know, so it's like, right. uh, I don't want to use the word fundamentalist because I feel it's degrading and doesn't really capture it. But we'll say they're on the very conservative side of the Christian family. We'll say, and I don't mean that negatively, it's just right. a description. Yeah, I gotcha. um, Where women uh, maybe taught young kids, but wouldn't, they wouldn't be caught dead teaching, you know, high school kids. Yeah. And they didn't give the offering or take the offering or the tithes or give communion or anything. And it was mm-hmm. explicitly dictated as that, well, the men come forward, not the ushers, the men come forward. And so, I mean, you, you do run the gamut with complementarianism. I noticed the SBC, to their credit, are moving closer towards the, the, the first option where the inclusion of women at every level, except as J.D. Greer, I believe, kind of sort of said elders kind of his yeah. kind of stopping point. Yeah, it's like a soft complementarianism. I keep hearing that, right. at least on like Twitter. And uh, right. it's it's usually from people that are making fun of it, but yeah, I think that's kind of the idea of like a soft complementarianism or something like right. that, which affirms the conclusion of complementarianism, which is male rule or male headship or what have yeah. you, but enacts it in a different way. So the, yeah. the the conclusion's the same, but the the method of it is different. But in my mind, the conclusion's the conclusion. How you get there, how you act on that is. Yeah. kind of it's kind of a wash it's a yeah. distinction worth noting and i i fully grant that but at the end of the day you're still not letting a woman preach yeah and so, to and you know like uh just for the audience but to the complementarians uh, i don't know i was gonna say credit but not really credit but uh they're pretty um uh strict on what men they'll actually uh allow to to oh, yeah. uh, be in the in the role of the pastor as well i know one thing growing up was that if you were divorced um mm-hmm. even if you weren't at fault in the, in that divorce even if you did everything that you could to save the marriage uh you know sorry you couldn't you couldn't be a deacon either um yep. a lot of churches even if they won't admit it function on the level that if you don't have kids you can't be a pastor um oh yeah or uh, married like, yeah that's or married like i when i was single i knew 
uh, at least in the churches that I wanted to serve in, like that being the Southern Baptist Church. And the Southern Baptist Church doesn't actually hold this, to the best of my knowledge, as like uh, uh, in their beliefs on paper. But they pretty much function like you pretty much got to be at least middle-aged, uh, married with some kids. Uh, right. and, and, you know, I guess I can understand it. It, it means you're probably more wise and uh, experienced in leadership and stuff like that. But uh, anyway, uh, continue with the introduction here. I kind of jumped yeah. in there. No, no, it's fine. And, and so that's kind of complementarianism in a nutshell. Um, dep- dep- you know, ask if you want a more nuanced take or a different take, ask a complementarian. But yeah. I think that's I think that's I, I think that's how I normally have heard it described. Yeah. Uh, egalitarianism is the belief it shares the egalitarians share the conviction that, yes, at the foot of the cross, we are equal in value and worth and in dignity. And uh, egalitarians also affirm that men and women are different. I can look at my wife right now who's pregnant with our kiddo and she is different than me. Yeah. <laughs> um, she can look at me and see that I'm different from her. She's yeah. You got a nice now. beard going on. Yeah. Yeah. A few days <laughs> I need to get a little more, but you know, we, so we affirm that they're uh, both affirm that men and women are different. We affirm that, you know, men and women are different. That's a, a guiding premise. Uh, the difference is that egalitarian doesn't see gender differences as a basis for hierarchy. Right. So it would be something along the line of complementarity without hierarchy. Yeah. Um, there are differences in the home. You know, a mother's a mother, a father's a father. Um, but that itself is not indicative that there must be a hierarchical relationship. It just means that we're different. Mm-hmm. And so egalitarianism essentially argues that, yes, we are different and it's a good thing and it's God created this and male and female, he made them and all those sorts of things. We just don't affirm the additional premise that complementarians affirm, and that is the idea that because we are different, there has to be some sort of hierarchy or what have you. And so it's, it doesn't see uh, men and women as equal, as uh, or I should say, as the same. In fact, we ordain women, be- and at least in my church, we ordain women and we have women do stuff because they're different from men. Uh, it's one of those things where if we right. believe that men and women were the exact same, there'd be no need for women. They're yeah. the same as us. We don't need them anyway. You know, and so... There is that belief of, of we are not interchangeable, we are different, but that means we all bring something to the table of shared sure. leadership together. Yeah, so that's, exactly. I mean, I'm saying it in a lot nicer way than some other people, but that's because I hold the view, but right. that's generally the principle behind it. So we agree on certain premises together with them, but we don't affirm the conclude of the additional premise of gender-based hierarchy. Gender gotcha. dictates differences, but not gender dictating hierarchy. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way of framing things. Um, and uh, now I'd like to move into some of the key texts that are often brought up in this discussion. So let me uh, rip some scripture out of context and then have you put it back in. First uh, Timothy uh, 2, 12 through 15 says this. It says, but I do not and this is Paul speaking, of course, but I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, because she, because she was deceived, came into transgression. But she will be saved through the bearing of children if she continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, a few things stand out to me in those texts. And uh, like I said, I've never given this subject that much thought. Um, but it sounds like Paul is saying that women cannot teach men in the church because Adam was made first or something, which just seems like an odd justification, if I'm being honest. Uh, I yeah. know it's Paul saying it, but you know it doesn't really matter who makes the argument. It's kind of a strange way to justify uh, 
what seems to be the conclusion there. And of course, I'm, I'm sure you don't agree that that is the conclusion. Um, and then also, it, it, it's as if uh, he says that Adam was not deceived, or he seems to insinuate that it was Eve that was deceived, but of course, so was Adam. And so it's kind of a weird argument just on its face. Um, he also says that a woman will be saved through childbirth. Now, I know we kind of load that word saved uh, as evangelicals, but it just uh, there's a there's quite a number of things here that just immediately sound odd to the reader. And uh, I think it was may have been these verses that I heard you speaking about over on Braxton's uh, podcast. But uh, how do you interpret these verses when what seems to be on the face of it, it just seems really almost obvious, at least whenever I get a, a uh, surface level reading of it. And uh, it seems to be saying some weird stuff. So go ahead. Uh, how do you commentate on these verses? Yeah, the, it's one of those. There are, I would say there's three key texts in Paul, this being one of them, um, that on the face of them are just genuinely difficult to interpret. And I'm not say, I'm saying that as someone who was a complementarian who read that, who opened up his Bible, looked at it and went, what the actual heck is Paul trying to argue? It, does, no, it didn't yeah, make sense. Yeah. yeah, I think it's worth pointing out that this isn't just like, uh, I don't think someone can come at you and say, uh, this is impossible for you to interpret in an egalitarian way. This is just a hard text. I don't care yeah. if you're complementarian or egalitarian. If you, if, you take this at, if you take this at face value, or what seems to be face value, you're left with those weird things that I just mentioned that women can't preach because Paul, I mean, because uh, Adam was born for or made first, and uh, women are saved through childbirth, stuff like that. So everybody's got to wrestle with this text in, yeah. in one, in, from at least, you know, uh, one perception or the other. Uh, but anyway, go ahead. No, and it's one of those things too. I, and I see egalitarians doing this with, say, Galatians three twenty-eight, where you know, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, as if that solves the debate. And I'm like, yeah. well, reading a text in English, I don't care what translation you use, is just not the best way to do it. And for someone who wants to see kind of the difficulties of this, um, just pull up five or six different translations of, say, one Timothy, um, let's say two eight through fifteen, mm-hmm. and just read them. And notice the differences, notice the footnotes, notice, you know, just the different ways that pe- that words get translated. And you'll see that there are genuine complications uh, sure. in interpreting it. Um, so, for example, um, Jamin Hubner is a friend of mine. He's a theologian and New Testament guy from South Dakota. He's a Reformed theologian, but don't hold it against him. He's my, one of my best friends. Uh, and he wrote an r- article in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. And I, I'm just going to – just to make this point, what you said sure, yeah. uh, more, more forceful. Um, he says um, – and he's talking about the question of clear – you know, the language of clear text versus obscure text. And he uses 1 Timothy 2 as, an, as a test case. Because um, a lot of people say, you know, the plain reading of the text is X, yeah, right? right? And it's yeah. like, yeah. Um, and he says, um, he says, 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15 is in the latter category, meaning an obscure text for five reasons. And he told me in personal correspondence, he actually thinks it's nine now, but we'll stick with five because that's what he has. Um, he said the meaning of the verse is still has been and is still highly disputed. That's, I think, a fair it's reason obscure. to say this. Yeah. It's obscure. Uh, it doesn't make sense according to a literal, straightforward reading, and therefore requires greater treatment. Yep. Uh, contains uh, an unusual number of obscure terms. Yes, there's a higher level of what's called hapax legomena in the New Testament, right. meaning a word that occurs only once in this section. So it's not just the pastorals. It's in this one section. Um, it's produced an abnormal amount of diverse interpretations throughout church history. 
Um, if you read complementarian literature, you'll see them arguing about to the extent of teaching. What does what extent does the office extend to? And so, um, and then the fifth one was it's difficult to apply. Like, how do you actually apply this? And that's kind of follows on the the previous example. Um, and so, just on its own face, what you just read, and I agree with you, just looking at it in English, you're just kind of like, what's going on here? This is just yeah. a weird text. And so. Um, instead of starting in chapter two, I'm going to take us sure. to chapter one real quick um, and yeah. just give – I'm reading from the NRSV. Um, I'll get a little more precise with Greek um, later on. But um, Paul's writing to Timothy, and of course there are critical scholars that don't think Paul wrote the pastorals. I think it's probably pretty likely Paul did, and I can say that as a New yeah. Testament guy. I think Paul well, actually wrote this. Yeah, let me ask you a question as a New yeah. Testament guy. I can't pronounce Greek that well. I haven't taken Greek. Um, but you said that there were a number of uh, hapax – how do you Legomena. say that? Yeah, okay. How many? Oh, gosh. Um, I could pull Jamin up and actually look. He actually has a chart. Um, I'll send it to you after. because I, Yeah, I sure. Like like five, it. more than five? or No, more than that. Um, yeah, yeah. Six. Okay, so, okay. okay. Six, six in these five verses. In these five verses. So, um, as a New Testament guy, sometimes, uh, or at least I, when I'm reading critical commentary and things like that, whenever a number of these show up, it uh, they'll deduce that maybe this was interpolated or something like that. Is that a possibility? Right. Do people take that interpretation? Uh, not of Second Timothy. Okay. Um, the, the the usual tactic is to go something along the lines of, um, and I thought this for a while until I changed my mind was uh, vocabulary is different, um, which is subjective. The syntax and grammar, how sentences are constructed, is different. Sure. They're really not. It's a subjective thing as well. Um, the theo and um, the kind of historical world that the pastoral seem to occupy is different, meaning it sounds like it's coming from something later, like around the time mm -hmm. of Irenaeus or like the second century. That itself, of course, is subjective as well. And the one thing, and this is something that gets into apologetics, and I think this is really relevant for, for apologists, is sure. the idea of um, it is not th – those three things are a smokescreen in my mind. The the real reason people, I think, reject Pauline authorship – and I'm, re I'm doing mind reading, and I don't like to do that, but this is kind of what I've deduced – is that the theology of the pastorals seems to conflict with everything else Paul says. So, for example, Bart Ehrman says, how could the Paul of Galatians 3.28 say women can't teach in 1 Timothy? Yeah. And therefore he deduces that the pastorals are pseudonymous or um, not written by Paul. Yeah. Well, of course, they, it, I mean, the context in those individual churches could have just been much different from each other. That, exactly. I mean, they, I'm no New Testament scholar, but go ahead. <laughs> but no, no, that's it, I think that's absolutely right. Just um, it doesn't mean um, and, and there are, of course, you know, I mean, the, the, the issue and the issue that got me is, is slavery, for example. The issue okay. of how Paul talks about slavery in chapter six of First Timothy is different than, say, Ephesians 6, where there is some sort of reciprocity on the level of, of slaves and masters, right? It's not as egalitarian as we would like, but there's a sense of there's a master in heaven who's watching, so you better act justly, right? Yeah. Which is a, a, a good mitigating word versus submit to your masters with no right. corroborating words. Like, that seems different. But on the whole of it, um, the question for apologists usually is, this has to make sense theological of everything else Paul says. Yeah. Um, and so uh, with all of that in mind, um, I, I, and so, for example, when we get to 1 Corinthians 14, I do suspect those are an interpolation, but that's not because of syntax or grammar per se. It's You see uh, manuscript evidence that seems to make, mean they're shifting around. Okay. Um, there's nothing like that in 1 Timothy manuscript-wise to suggest either interpolation that makes or sense. anything like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Go ahead. So the, no, that's fine. Um, uh, so Paul in uh, 
1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3 from the NRSV says, I urge you, that is Timothy, although to the broader church by extension of Timothy, as I did when I was on my way to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus, so Ephesus, so that you might instruct certain people not to teach any false doctrine or heterodox doctrine. Gotcha. And not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations rather than the divine training that is known by faith or faithfulness. Um, and then, of course, the language is, of course, of love. And some people have deviated and turned aside to meaningless talk or chatter or false talk or something like that, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make assertions. And so already we can see kind of what what's the context for what's being said here it's not just paul's yeah. writing in a vacuum there's some sort of thing he's arguing with um he's not and he's also not naming names per se either which is interesting because usually he'll just like in galatians he's like you false teachers of the blah 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 here it's he's being more subtle um and if we keep going down just for a little more context um he says in verse 18 quote i'm giving you these instructions timothy my child in accordance with the prophecies made earlier about you so that by following them you may fight the good fight uh, having faith and a good conscience, uh, having faith and a good conscience. By rejecting conscience, um, certain persons have suffered shipwreck in the faith. Uh, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have turned over to Satan, uh, so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Yeah, and yeah, so, so he he has no problem naming names. <laughs> his pro problem naming names, uh, and he also has no problem kicking people out of the church for yeah, blasphemy or handing them over to satan yeah <laughs> yeah and that of course echoes the the incestuous yeah. man from first corinthians 5 you know i right. handed him over to satan and stuff like yeah. that um, and so that gives us kind of a context there are a few more uh instances throughout the pastorals but i think just if we just read it kind of narratively or chronologically we can see the sense of something's going on here yeah. uh there's endless genealogies myths other contrary things being told yeah people and are teaching we go, weird stuff yeah yeah there there's and it, we're not told exactly what it is. We don't have, of course, a formal title for it. Uh, some people say it's proto-Gnosticism. Right. Um, there's evidence for it, but again, proto-Gnostics were much later. And if you think it was written during that time, then it makes sense. But I, I can't accept that. That doesn't make sense mm -hmm. to me. Probably, probably the genealogy part is a good indicator, okay. maybe. Yeah. Um, and what we do have, um, and we, we know this, if we read the book of Acts, uh, 17 through, I think it's 19, I could be wrong, but it's those, I think it's 17 and 18, where uh, Paul and others are driven out of Ephesus because mm -hmm. Artemis the Great, Artemis the Great, Artemis the Great, and they won't worship our gods, and they're telling people not to buy our idols and stuff like that. And so Artemis is the major, uh, we'll say, religious cultic hub in Ephesus, which is where Paul is writing to. Um, and this is something complementarians agree on. We know we, that's an undisputable fact. This is, he's writing to a place where Artemis worship is central. It's part of the economy, basically. To not worship Artemis is, well, it's a good act of treason if you're an early Christian, which I'm kind of a fan of treason if you're an early Christian, right? <laughs> um, and so, but we can see that kind of stuff coming along. So then he talks about, so moving to chapter two, um, he's urging for supplications, prayers, intercessories, thanksgiving. He's praying for everyone. I want you to pray for everyone. Then he makes this great, a Christological point, um, God our Savior who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the right. truth, um, for there is one God and one meaning between God and humankind, Jesus Christ himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for the elect, I'm sorry, for the all, uh, for all. <laughs> Uh, and of course, and so that, but so this is all grounded in a proper understanding of who Christ is. And my, my wife has done a lot of work on Christology and, and the pastorals and how Christ is kind of at the center of everything that's going on, right? A proper understanding of Christ means a proper understanding of ethics, a proper understanding of, of worship. And so Christ is at the center of everything because Christ himself human gave himself to liberate us from slavery and bondage and so forth. So Christ is the antidote to whatever 
the false teachers are proselytizing about. Right. And so then we get a good word to the to men um, in verse eight. I desire that then that in every place, the, of course, every place, that's already a hermeneutical question, in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Already hermeneutically, we're like, all right, some, all right we, we get the principle, don't be angry in church. Right. Okay. And then, of course, uh, Paul says, and continues on into the question you asked about, and I apologize for taking so long to get no, it. No, you're good. Definitely good. In verse 9, we have something, and I'm, I'm pulling Greek up, so feel free to check me and call me on this. I have no problem with that. Uh, in verse 9, we begin with what's called a uh, in the same way or likewise um, adverb. So uh, what he said to the men, you know, lift up holy hands without anger reverence, in this same way also the wives or the women. So he's operating on the same kind of trajectory of rhetoric. He's yeah. not just stopped to talk about something new. He's addressing something. And there is a, a question of are we talking about a house, like a household, or are we yeah. talking about worship, like a worship setting? And for my money, I suspect it's a house, like house churches. But the idea of this being purely about ecclesiology, there's not enough indicators in the text for me. But whatever is being talked about, there's a sense in which he's correcting bad behavior. And I think that's pretty fair to see. Then he tells them, you know, um, excuse me, I'm fighting a sneeze. There oh, you're good. Uh, they should dress <laughs> modestly, um, in decency, um, not braided with gold, pearls, expensive clothes. Um, essentially, don't flaunt your wealth. Don't yeah. come in because, I mean, wealth, it's just a brief background. In the ancient world, you could say probably, it's hard, to, it's hard to put a cap on it, but let's say about no more than 10% of the ancient world was wealthy in any sense. Yeah. Everything beneath that, the 90% was either, and I'm not talking like the Bernie Sanders, the 1% or anything like that. But <laughs> That's the a good idea impression. Of, <laughs> 1%. Uh, but the idea being that if you're either at subsistence level or below, and that's 90% of the population, so not everyone's wealthy. And if these are converts from Artemis, you know, the, the plated hair, the braids, right. and all the displays, they're basically coming from Artemis to Christ. Right. And they're coming as Artemis worshipers who have now been Christified, right? They're, 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 they've accepted Christ, but the old way of doing things is, is still with them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that, that at least contextually makes the most sense to me. Um, but instead of being uh, overt in their display of affluence and wealth and power— because um, women at the time, if they were involved in cults and religion, had a lot of power. Um, the only yeah. men that could serve with them had to be emasculated or um, snipped um, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and so there is a sense in which there is a domineering attitude or a matriarchal attitude, perhaps. You can't say it's 100% certain, but at least that makes a little bit of sense. Sure. Um, and then verse 10, but instead of presenting yourself as holy, as great, as wealthy, as powerful, as, as privileged, not in the sense of political, but as someone who has means and wealth, right. um, with good works. Now, as last I checked, everyone's supposed to act with good works, but he's telling them specifically, adorn yourself with things that characterize Christ-likeness. So good works, uh, you profess that you love God, look like you love God and not yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and then he says something that I think it's really overlooked, and I, I don't know if I made mention of this in the video with Braxton, but there's this imperative. Uh, it's a manthano. It's a, in the imperative form, which tells women, uh, let the women learn. So it's not a permissive or a concession. It's let the women must learn. It's an assertion to them. Um, and he's telling them to learn. Not yeah, mine telling... says a woman must learn. Yep, yeah. a must. There's, a, there's an urgency to it. And it's the only imperative in, in the passage. It's the only direct, I want them to do this. Yeah. And so um, I want them to learn in quietness with all submission. I don't have a problem with that. I think that makes sense. Students should learn in submission to people that know stuff. Mm -hmm. I did that in seminary all the time. 
you keep your mouth shut because the instant you mouth off, your professor smacks you down. Uh, and so that's the actual, that's where the conversation should begin. Paul is actually encouraging women to learn. Yeah. And that gets lost because we love to pivot to verse two or verse 12 and be like, ah, see, yeah, but it's like, well, no, he's telling them to learn. Yeah. And no, then, even I started in, in verse 12 whenever I read it off. Yeah. That's a good point. And then, uh, the next one is verse 12. Uh, you have, and I'll, I'll read it literally in Greek. And I'm, I'm not trying to give any interpretive slant. I'll actually, I won't translate the one word that's under debate. I'll just leave it. So didaskane, to teach. Uh, it's an infinitive to teach. Um, day, meaning a uh, conjunction, meaning like a but or an and or something like that. Um, gunaki, uh, woman. It's uk uh, epitrepo. Uh, so not permit. I do not permit. Ude, um, or. Uh, and then authentane is the verb uh, under discussion. What is this verb? Because this is one of the hapax legomena. What does this verb mean? And I'll leave that for a bit. Then antros. But um, Allah, uh, a woman should remain uh, or she should remain in quietness, that same quietness of a learning posture that's right. in the previous verse. Okay. And so what we have here is, and there's this is one of those verses that I have my reading, egalit- other egalitarians have their own, so you're just getting my reading among sure. many. But what I see is you have a negated finite verb, an, that uk epitrepo, that I do not permit. Um I would expect if Paul were making a universal prohibition everywhere, one, I'd expect that to see in all his epistles, because this is something he would have to reinforce because not everyone has a chance to read all these. It's not like Roman, Rome can read this. They don't, they can't just send it over. Oh yeah, just snail mail to it. You know? And so I would expect theologically there to be a much broader scope. Um, but two, you don't, you, he's not permitting them to learn because, or permitting them to teach because they have to learn first. Right. And in, Ju- in Ju- uh, Jewish axioms, I can actually pull this up. Um, I think, it, uh, and this is of course not biblical literature, but it's historical literature. Um, I think this is, oh my gosh, this, oh, here we go. This is Sirach. Yeah, that's a fun word. Sirach chapter 18. This is a good Jewish text. If we want to understand kind of, uh, wisdom literature outside the new Testament that is uh, coordinate with the new Testament. Um, and talking about a need, and this is kind of general, it's like the Psalms. It's kind of general wisdom literature. It's not structured or theologically like systematic. Um, he writes in Sirach eighteen nineteen. before you speak, learn. Right. And before you fall ill, take care of your health. And so before judgment comes, examine yourself. You know, so those sorts of themes, right? But before you can speak, you have to learn. And so you're, so essentially Paul's telling them, uh, women or wives, depending on, it's the same word in Greek, um, before they can teach, they have to learn. And so, of course, you would tell people, I'm not letting you teach right now because you have to learn. Right. It makes sense that you would prohibit someone. I'm not permitting, uh, let's say, um, my professor is telling, you know, I'm not permitting Nick to get up here and give the lecture in class. He's to learn first. Right. And that's what we're doing is learning. Um, and so, and the key difference, too, is are we, dis- are we talking about two different activities? Uh, or, or rather, I should say two separate activities or two activities on one hand or on one idea, Right. So, for example, um, to hit and run uh, is describing a single action, right? It's describing one thing. Are we talking about something like that? And so are we talking about to teach and um, have control over? Or are we talking about to teach separate from this authenteo hapoxagamata, right? And grammatically, it, it's really difficult to tell. But at the best study I've read says these should be seen as overlapping things that should be taken together. You allow the distinctiveness of both words, but they should be seen as prohibiting a specific type of activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we have here 
I'm not permitting a woman to teach, and it would be something like uh, a dash, to teach, to teach, dash, or dash, um, authentic a man, right? So they right. should be seen as in brackets as one thing. Yeah, it's as if uh, having authority over someone is um, encapsulated in teaching them. Right, and, how, and the method of, or the attitude of teaching, right? Right. Yeah. Um, authentic um, is the verb form. Uh, authentic is the noun. And these words... Um, both are very rare in, in Greek literature, um, especially around the time of Paul. Um, the two examples I found most helpful or illustrative are in Wisdom of Solomon, which is a, is a pseudepigraphal Jewish text, where it talks about in the noun form of people killing or authenticating their children. Hmm. So and it's a context of murder, killing their yeah. children. And in Philo, um, if someone wants the reference, I can give it. I forget exactly what it is off the top of my head. But... Um, Philo talks about what, um, actually, for the sake of, let me actually get that. Let me find that reference because <laughs> I am that, there we go. Um, I don't know why I put it in the Latin. Quod deterius patiari insidiari. There you go. 170. So for everybody out there that uh, understands Latin, you know where to find it. <laughs> I think, I hope that's Latin. Otherwise, I've just made a complete fool of myself. Let me put that in Google just to make sure I, there's a specific um, calling of it. Um, the, oh, that's what it is. It's called... In English, the worst attacks the better, I think is okay. what it is. The, and, of course, Cain and Abel. Um, Cain became an authentess, a murderer of Abel. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of uh, linguistic parallels between how Cain had treated Abel with how um, Eve uh, uh, is said to have treated Adam and, gotcha. and all those sorts of things. And so whatever we're talking about, we're not talking about a neutral exercise of authority or even an ecclesiological exercise of authority. We're talking about something like control. Um Okay. or domineer or something like that. And so Paul is not, I mean, I don't know why Paul would permit, Paul's not permitting something positive. He's permitting something he deems as negative. Right. Um, and the fact that he uses this really where, you can't really say it's a violent word because it's not like words are violent. But in every other context, it, this word seems to either denote something like master or murderer. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so, so let me... Uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, make things a little bit more general, both for myself and for the audience to get a little clarity. It seems yeah. like uh, what you're saying or what you're getting at is what Paul is prohibiting here, he would also prohibit of men. That is, men should not teach before they learn, and they also should not domineer in uh, your interpretation of this, uh, what we read in English as authority over. Uh, men shouldn't do this either, um, but he's just specifically calling out the women in, in this mm -hmm. context. Is that, is, already, that a good, is that a good summary? I think that's very, very, very well stated. Um, because he's already kicked out Alexander and Hymenaeus. True. He's already thrown the, 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 the men out. And the fact so, that he wants the women to stay and learn is a really interesting kind of yeah, fact. Yeah. So would you say that he's kicked them out for doing what he's telling these uh, women not to do? Correct. Okay. Um, so they might learn not to blaspheme. There's kind of a purpose clause there. I've kicked them, I handed them over to Satan so that they would learn not to blaspheme or so they would not blaspheme. Here, I, I want the women to learn in silence, but at the present time, I'm not permitting, so at the present time, I'm not permitting them to teach and act an authoritarian over a man or something right. like that, which is good because acting an authoritarian is, is, is fundamentally in contradiction, I think, to Pauline theology as a whole. Um, and so he's kind of got this idea of I'm not I don't want anyone to do this. Yeah. And so on the one sense it's a universal prohibition yeah. because no one should act like this, but also because of the finite nature of of the situation or the context seems to indicate that there would be a time when women can teach, but just yeah. not at the present time because they're ignorant and they're acting like Artemis is still 
yeah. kind of the kind of their their king. Or the only thing that uh, hangs me up a little bit is that he does seem to be specifically contrasting the women with the men. And so when we mm-hmm. say, uh, you know, if he was just making, if he was uh, saying. I don't want anybody to to do this. I'm just kind of specifically calling out the women in this context. It seems like he yeah. might uh, say something like, uh, "Don't uh, uh, don't want them to have authority, but just have authority." I don't know why it has to be specifically authority over a man. Um, right. I guess unless in that context they were specifically domineering over men, uh, like you said. But go ahead. No, that seems to be the case. And in, in cultic literature, we can see women acted. An authority. It, it was Artemis was functionally matriarchal. The women were in charge, yeah. and so Paul's basically. I mean, if we put it culturally, right? These women are coming in with their displays of who they used to be, and Paul is saying that's not how this is to be in the household of God. Rather, you are to learn what it means to be a person of God, a person of faith, and uh, you're not allowed to act in authoritarian over men, as was your lifestyle, your former yeah. lifestyle. Um, that is to be laid aside, and so. Um, it's kind of like, you know, uh, Galatians and other texts about baptism in the spirit. You're baptized into Christ, you're immersed into Christ and you're reborn essentially. Um, Paul's not basically going like Artemis worship is fine. We'll just baptize it and call it good. It's like, no, that stuff doesn't come in the church. There's only one meteor between God and humankind. That's Jesus Christ, not Artemis, not any of these other false gods. Um, and then the rationale becomes in in 13 and 14, as, as you mentioned is, um, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. My first thought is, yeah, that's, that's not a statement of hierarchy because he would make that point. It's a statement of sequence. Right. And so, um, for example, you can say stuff, uh, for example, uh, for can be, for example, you know, like I just said, for example, for example, can mean, for example, he's giving, I think an example of here's what happens. So for, uh, I did it again, for example, um, in, in, uh, second Corinthians eleven three, Paul says to the, the whole church, um, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by its cunning, so Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your your thoughts, the entire church, will also be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Mm -hmm. And so deception is not a gendered thing. Adam and Eve, as you mentioned, are deceived. Mm -hmm. Deception is something that impacts the entire church. It's just here, Paul basically is going, here's what happened the last time a woman was deceived. Mm Mm-hmm. And so he's giving, and Paul's loves to do that with Adam. You know, sin came through Adam, right, yeah. in Romans 5. He's giving the biggest example he can that'll get you. Yeah. And here he's just doing it with Eve. Uh, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's in- indicating a creational sequence. A lot of people will say the created order. I think it, that's overladen with too many premises. We'll say the creational sequence. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Hmm. And stuff like that. And so we get a, sequ- a, a, a terse kind of biblical theological summary of the fall. This is what happens when you act perhaps in interdependence or you act in overlordship or or, yeah. or something like that. Um, and that it's, kind of – yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So it's not really so much that um, you know she acted out of the creation order as if like usurping her husband. It mm-hmm. just is that she – I don't know. What, how would you word it? What did she do there then? Well, and that's the question where a lot of people go um, – Paul is using Genesis 1 to 3 – in an interesting way, because Gen- and I would argue there's nothing in, explicit in Genesis about a gendered hierarchy. Right. Um, there are differences that Paul that you know you need both men and women to have babies, kind of a 
normal yeah. thing. Which, um, by the way, this often gets brought up. I'm sorry to interject again. No, please. But the, the biological differences always get brought up as an analogy uh, by complementarians, at least those mm-hmm. who I've spoken with and in the circles that I've been in. Uh, they'll say, well, you know, we're not saying that um, there's a difference in value, of course. But, mm-hmm. you know, men and women have these distinctives and they have different functions. For example, women have children or, you know, give birth. Men don't, that sort of stuff. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, but, I mean, those those are all, like, biological differences. There's nothing biological about a woman that would be like she can't teach. Like, if you want to go back to the biology of it, we both got brains, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and tongues to speak. Um, so, like, that analogy just never worked for me. Um, yeah. That was one of the ones that, that got me. No, that's one of the ones that made me kind of go, it's like, wait, like, my mother – has I think a high school education. Um, I've actually never talked with her about it. I, I was homeschooled. I just assumed my mom knew everything. Yeah. Uh, and that woman taught me scripture. She taught me everything and all that sort of stuff. And I don't agree with her about everything. She doesn't agree with me about everything. But I was I was essentially taught theology by my mother. Right. And so when I kind of came into complementarianism, my first thought was, this is really weird that it's okay for her to raise me in the most formative years of my life. But the instant yeah. I, I get hair on my chest, suddenly something becomes different. And I'm not trying to make light of that. It's I'm actually thinking – but it, I think it says something really serious to the point of what does this say both about um, men and women that – I don't know. It's just – it never made sense to me. And, if, and it's one of those – if Scripture taught that, I'd have to believe it. I'm the kind of person – if Scripture actually taught what they say, I would affirm it 100 percent. I wouldn't yeah. like it, but I would do my best to submit to the Word of God. Um, and I think what happens here, and um, you know, like you said, there's this created order language. It's like, well, that again is slippery language because the question is, we're not talking about order, although the world was ordered a certain way. But there's a sequence to creation, sure. But unless we presume that biology dictates a certain functional hierarchy, we're, we're talking past each other, and that's usually what gets assumed in the use of the language of created order. Um, at least in my circles, when a complementarian will say, uh, a woman exercising authority over a man, I'm like, well, no one should exercise authority over each other, but that's a separate point. Um, the idea being that a lot of it goes, women can't be pastors because it violates the created order. And I'm like, how does being a woman doing something like that cause a problem? Like sin wise, I can understand if she's, a, if she's living in sin, for example, or she's a bad character or she's clearly not called or self-serving or something like that. You know, it's like, it's one of those things where if you put a man or a woman in front of me, right? And this is a digression. I apologize. You put two, a man and no, a woman in front of me. You put them in front of me. Um, I can't tell you if either one's called to leadership. I don't know if either one of them's a Christian. I know literally nothing about them except this is a man and this is a woman. I need, I, it doesn't tell me anything about their character or qualifications. And that's why I think a lot of this debate really kind of hinges on the assumption that gender dictates hierarchy. And I just kind of go... I just don't see that taught in scripture. Yeah, you know, if you're going to stick to this created order thing, and I, uh, you know, sorry, but on this podcast, we hold people's feet to the flame. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a Calvinist either. I did a whole series through this as well. Um, but um, if you're going to stick to this created order thing, and you're going to, especially if you're going to use biology as an analogy, which often happens, you're mm-hmm. eventually going to be stuck with saying something I don't think you want to say. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like women just by their biology can't preach or because they were created second can't preach or you know i don't i don't know what you're stuck with because you got to give it a reason you got to give some reason um 
do people just come out and say that? To their credit, most don't go there. Um, I I think just by nature of if if we're being logically consistent, I think you have to go there. Many don't and reject that conclusion. And I respect them for that. And I, it's kind of like saying, you know, a Calvinist friend of mine, we use the Calvinist example, right? I don't think he believes that God ordains evil. I think, I think logically speaking, his view entails that. Yeah. But because he doesn't affirm that conclusion, I can't attribute that to him uh-huh. because that's just an act of, of bad faith, right? You don't do that to people, right? And so it's one of those things, too, where I kind of go, um, if we're talking about using this sort of loaded language, my first thought is we need to at least be able to justify it um, in a rational way that flows from Genesis, that flows from Timothy, it flows, flows from Pauline theology, It's co- so it's coherent, uh-huh. and a lot of it essentially and there was an article written i forget by the guy's name so i won't i won't try and mention his name but he essentially argued that yes because of gender women are ontologically incapable of being pastors it was actually in response to someone who was arguing against the uh functional uh equal in essence unequal in role she actually wrote a really good article yeah. on it she was an egalitarian and she challenged him it was a really good article and he basically said that is correct it's yeah, because so women yeah he, i think but i think he's the exception yeah he's I definitely also, the exception but the reason that you you have to come to some sort of conclusion like this, even if not that specific one, is because you have to be able to give me a reason to as to why um, you you have uh, uh, your your senior pastor is female. You got to give me a reason why that church is going to be you know destructive or something like that. You know what I mean? Like right. it's going to go in error. Like if yeah. if this is the if if having female headship at, at uh, in the church or not head of course Christ is the head of the church sure, but you know yeah. what I, you know what i mean uh, yeah. leadership in the church yeah, something's got to go astray and you've got to tell me why that is why is right. it that when a, f- a female would be in charge that things are going to go wrong why is that yeah and, and i don't think you're an- i don't i don't think you're really you're probably just not going to give an answer you're just going to say i'm sorry this is just what the bible says i believe it and well to and i credit, respect that and, and yeah. i respect that like if if that's someone's honest conclusion from the text, I will not begrudge someone for believing. Well, that. I, absolutely I, I get mean, that. I respect that you're not. I don't. I don't respect it in the sense that it's not good thinking. It, <laughs> no, I okay, agree. Because the next que- yeah, because yeah. the next question is this. Well, why does the Bible say that? You know why? You know, even if you don't know, the same thing happens with the Calvinists. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, there is such a thing as a logical. Um, the logical entailment of something versus where someone just existentially or personally just feels they can't go. Now, yeah. a lot of complementarians, to their credit, don't want to say, and I affirm them in this, women by nature, so not just biologists, by nature, cannot be pastors. And I just kind of go, I understand that's the conclusion you're drawing. But I feel like that's the conclusion you kind of have to go to. Yeah. And some go there, but I think most, and I think a lot of people just kind of live in that dichotomy or that tension. And that's fine. You know, I, I lived in tension like that for a long time. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I think you're right. There has to be some sort of reason why. And it can't just be merely that the Bible says still. We have to ask, why does the Bible say it? And that's where the question then begins. Um, so where were we? I don't – oh, verse 15, right? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And so then the question then becomes, if this is right, if Paul's talking about the created sequence of how um, – Eve became deceived, like these women are deceived by, you know, artesian women are deceived as well. Um, if they are functioning together as kind of a, as representative, so Eve functions representationally, um, although she functions that way also in Second Corinthians to the whole church, which is interesting too. 
Um, yet she will be saved. That is the singular. She will mm -hmm. be saved through childbearing or the childbirth or child rearing, or we'll talk about that in a sec, provided they continue. So it's shifted. The, the singular and the they uh, mm -hmm. continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. My first thought is faith and love and holiness with modesty. Those are Christian virtues. That's not a, a female virtue. Those are Christian right. virtues. Um, so that's one thing already that the, Paul is not basically going like, if they act womanly over here, it's like, no, they have to participate in Christian ethics, right? Right. Uh, and yet she'll be saved. And that's the common word for sozo, you know, it's, or for salvation or deliverance. Um, we, we do um, press it a lot, um, but it's Paul's normal language for salvation or deliverance or something like that. Um, the question then becomes, and I, I made this point earlier and I'll bring it back, is the idea of Christology. Um, throughout the entire epistle, Paul has talked about who Christ is. Christ is our hope. Christ is this. He's the one mediator. He gave himself as a ransom and all these sorts of things. And here the question then becomes, are we talking about the act of childbearing, that is the birthing of children, or are we talking about the childbirth, the Christ child? Right. Mm. And if that's the case, and I think, I mean, the grammar and stuff, some people dispute it, but if we think uh, theologically and exegetically together, not just going, what does grammar say? Because grammar doesn't tell you theologically what something means. Then the childbirth, which is, it's articular, so it's the childbirth, means something probably along the lines of the Christ child. And then we have a perfect bookend from the beginning where Christ is the source of all this sort of stuff. And because of this childbirth, uh, Mary, essentially, we have uh, redemption. We have liberation. Because what we then see is she, and this is, of course, the echo to the I will crush his head and you will bruise his heel language in Genesis 3, you know, the Proto-Evangelium, the promise of the sure. future Messiah. Um, there's a lot of echoes of that text in this verse. And uh, the language of uh, childbearing here probably referred, and early church fathers actually interpreted it this way. They interpreted it as uh, Christologically, the Christ birth. Um, Are you saying verse fifteen is the Christ birth? Yes. Uh, so okay. okay uh, so let me let me just uh, kind of clarify real quick, or as yeah, sure. as I'm understanding it. So back up to thirteen. For mm -hmm. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, because she was deceived, came into transgression. But she, so you, this is that she is referring back to Eve. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. Eve will be saved through the bearing of children. Christ, or the bearing of Christ. Okay. If, if uh, And so Eve will be saved, or rather, uh, yeah, Eve will be saved through this entire sequence. Uh, and what we have here is, or even, oh, sorry, I was distracted by something. Uh, Eve, or rather, the language of salvation will come through the childbirth. And this is, of course, providing that they continue in faith and love and holiness. And so there's, of course, a conditionality that goes along with that in faith and love and hope. Okay. Um, and if this is Christ as the childbirth, um, then we have um, something that not only ties everything together, but it gives us the Christological grounds for everything that's come before. Um, everything about... Um, Oh, I don't know, for chapter one, uh, apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So the future hope, the future glory in chapter one, verse one, um, grace and mercy and peace from God, the father, uh, and Jesus Christ, our Lord, uh, and so on and so forth. So we see Christ is kind of at the center who has strengthened him. He's judged, uh, Paul is faithful in verse 12 at uh, chapter one, verse 12. Um, and so on and so forth, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost, right? So we already have a proleptic kind of look of, the saying is true and full of in verse 15, chapter 1, 
um, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And then, of course, Paul keeps talking about how he received mercy from Christ and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think interpreting this not merely as an act of having babies, because I don't think Paul believed in justification by faith of baby making. (laughs) Um, This will be the first time he actually talks about it. And if that's the case, if, if women are saved by faithful having of children, then I'd expect that would need to be something he spoke a lot about in other epistles. Yeah, you know, I, I know those... some women that can't have kids, so I guess they're, yeah. you know. You know, or some men who can't get their wives pregnant or, right. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, whatever whole... reason, yeah. And so interpreting it in terms of Christ grounds everything Christologically and gives us kind of a means of salvation and gives us a means of understanding everything in a broader context rather than just being about baby-making because this is the first time we'd actually have baby making mentioned. And Paul doesn't talk about baby making elsewhere in this way. It seems that just given the context of Christ and Adam and Eve as typologies and figures, it seems that taking it as yet she'll be saved through the childbirth, Mm -hmm. provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty makes best sense of the context and also helps us sum up the Genesis three narrative of the fall where the future hope in the Messiah is that he will crush the head of the serpent that we see sure. in Romans 16 and so on and so forth. So that's generally how I understand it. There's a lot more, of course, that could be said, but I don't want to be the only one talking for so long. No, no you're, you're fine. Okay, so uh, we spent uh, quite a bit of time on that one, and that's perfectly good. That was uh, a lot of fun to dive into that text. I'm going to skip 1 Corinthians 14. I know that was on the agenda, uh, okay. but uh, we, uh, we spent a lot of time on that one. But I think the audience will really... Uh, appreciate the depth and of the exegesis we went into um, there in First Timothy. Um, but, okay, so that's kind of answering um, the complementarianism defense. That's one of the, the major uh, verses that they'll turn to and things like that. Uh, what, what, what um, as, as quickly as possible, are some uh, positive arguments from the text of the New Testament or from Paul that you might turn to that you would say Paul is actually egalitarian? Yeah, um, I would say there's numerous ways uh, you could go. Um, for, and I'll just give a brief shout out. On 1 Corinthians 14, um, Philip Payne's book, Man and Woman, One in Christ, has about, what, 70 pages on it? And he argue, he gives kind of the, the interpretive landscape here, the four major interpretive options. And he argues for one where he says these verses are probably interpolated later. Okay. Um, I think his reasoning is compelling. Um I'm not 100%, but I think that makes good sense of, of everything. But just so you know, no one can say we didn't address it. Sure. If someone's interested, Philip Payne's book is a very fair and balanced treatment from an egalitarian, very conservative uh, reader. So you can talk, you can argue about Philip Payne with Philip Payne. Um, <laughs> uh, as, as for a kind of a broad case for Paul, I think uh, there's a few things that to be mentioned before we get to specific text. One is the issue one as a good Baptist of uh, the issue of baptism, the issue of the spirit and the issue of um, eschatology. So three kind of broad theological things before we address certain topics. Baptism in Galatians uh, 3, not merely just 3.28, but the whole idea of being baptized into Christ and clothed with Christ. Um, Every reference to baptism in the New Testament presumes that women are participating in it. And so when we think of a lot of these theological themes, we usually you will see like masculine language or we'll tend to have more of a, a men male centered mentality to it. But if, if we're being honest, Paul is writing every epistle in the new Testament to churches of men, women, and slaves and children. 
mm-hmm. right? He presu- he's presuming that if, uh, uh, for example, if a slave hears the language of Christ became a slave or was found, uh, took the form of a slave in the Christ hymn in the Philippians 2, where although he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped or wielded for himself, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, every slave in that household in Philippi is going to yeah. latch onto that. That's going to yeah. speak very powerfully to them. And so we need to think in terms of this broader kind of ecclesiological, or not ecclesiological, this broader household kind of identity, where you have numerous people, men, women, slaves, and children, listening to this epistle being written or read to them. And so when they hear the language of baptism in Galatians, where they're called uh, sons of God, uh, some translations, I think, actually make the mistake of watering it down to children of God. Um, I think we should retain the masculine language because it presumes that women and children and slaves are given the same status as sons. Right. Yeah. Which I think is a very empowering, very beautiful image of everyone's a son of God, meaning we all have the same rights as the firstborn, which is really cool. Um, if that's the case, then baptism becomes an egalitarian axiom because everyone gets to participate in it. Everyone dies to their old self. We're immersed in Christ, as Romans 6 talks about, and we're raised to new life in the spirit. Right. And so that entire theological axiom of baptism in Paul is egalitarian. It doesn't care about your race. It doesn't care about your gender. It doesn't even care about your socioeconomic status because slaves were baptized all over the place. And early Christians made a really big push towards uh, you can't call it the abolition of slavery because it was so economically ingrained, but recognize the brutality of the system. Right. And so slaves were freed. Uh, Paul advocates, I think, for Philemon uh, to be set free. And the epistle to Philemon. Not everyone thinks that, but I think I would argue very strongly that's Paul's idea. And if that's the case, then baptism for Philemon meant his emancipation from slavery, mm-hmm. which means he's united into the family of Christ without any sort of, well, he was a slave, but you know, we'll keep him over there. So I know he's a full-blown brother in Christ, right? And so baptism is, is, an egal- is fundamentally, I think, in Paul's theology, egalitarian. And so the second one is the spirit. Uh, and a lot of conversations on women in ministry, um, and I'm not saying this about you. I, I've, I've, I, I've had friends do this where um, I'll be like, all right, so let's talk about women in ministry. And they open their Bible, they grab their Bible, and they turn to 1 Timothy 2, and they just kind of read like this, right? And I'm like, before we talk about ecclesiology, we need to talk about what inspires ecclesiology, and that sure. is the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. And I'm not faulting you or anything. I think it's a very appropriate no, yeah. way to start. Um, but if we're talking about ecclesiology, we need to talk about the foundation of uh, ecclesiology, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about how the many members and the different body parts, which is playing on a crude idea that some people are the junk of Christ, which is kind of, <laughs> kind of a really funny image. But Paul says the unmentionable places are united to Christ, and you're all one in Christ. And this idea that the Spirit is the one who empowers the body to do the work of the Spirit, and that there's no partiality shown, right? The Spirit doesn't go, you know what, this— this hospitality thing's for women, but this preaching thing is for men. We don't see that sort of distinctions drawn. There's no genderedness in the distribution of spiritual gifts, of prophecy, of teaching, of preaching, of all that sort of stuff. Um, and we see the same thing in Romans 12, where it begins, and I think this is so uh, profound, um, and I, I'd love to read this, because this, sure, this yeah, it's, it's not a gendered text, but it's something—well, it is, but— um, this really struck me. I was very moved when I heard someone expound upon this. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12 and, and RSV again, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. A woman or a slave hearing that, that's radical news. Yeah. That their body, who they are as a person, is can be presented as a holy sacrifice to God in terms of mission, in terms of uh, participation in Christ, that they're included in this. 
And then verse two, do not be conformed to this world, which is a call for transformation of the whole person, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, and then, of course, you have the language of for as in one body, we have many members and not all the members have the same function. Uh, so we who are who are many are one body in Christ and individually we are members of one another. And then you kind of keep going ministry and minister, the teacher and teaching and so on and so forth. We see that there are differences in the body. No one's denying that. But we are saying the differences of the body are not predicated on gender or anything like that. They're predicated on the sovereignty of the spirit. And I shouldn't be saying that because I'm not a Calvinist, but on the sovereignty of the spirit, you know. <laughs> It's, it's predicated on this. And so if we take those two texts, and there's more we could talk about, just but not for the sake of going too long. The idea is that the Spirit's sovereignty and the Spirit's will to give gifts to whom the Spirit wants to get gifts to should inform our ecclesiology before we even jump to a, a quote, prohibitionist text. Um, because if we start with the Spirit, which is the foundation of ecclesiology, then when we come to the ecclesiology text, we're informed by the Spirit and not, and I hate to say this, as a Baptist, a lot of Baptists do this where we start with ecclesiology and then we go to the spirit, right? Sure. We look for who's in charge, who does what, who does what, and then we go looking at the spirit. I'm like, no, I think it's it's the inverse. And I don't see why a uh, complementarian couldn't agree with me on that in principle. So to, in fairness to them. Sure. Yeah. But we start, I think, with the spirit. And if we don't see distinctions given in gifts of leadership and talent and all that sort of stuff, then it means we need to think caref- more carefully about our ecclesiology. Yeah, and so spirit-led sure. ecclesiology. I'm not opposed to hierarchy, nothing like that. I like being a pastor. Um, just means I'm not a pastor because of my gender. Right. Exactly. Um, um, so is, is there anywhere in the text, whether New Testament or wherever, that you find um, a female in this function? Yeah. Um, uh, a big one I found that I thought was interesting is, uh, of course, you have the women in Romans 16. Uh, well, we can go through them real quick. But the one I was struck by was uh, Philippians 2, or I'm sorry, Philippians 4, 2 to 3. It has uh, Paul saying, I urge, or I encourage uh, Yodia and Syntyche, uh, two women, to be of the same mind in Christ, which is, of course, the same mind language we heard in the Christ hymn, having the same mind as Christ. Yes, I ask you also, my loyal companion, to help these women, for they have contended or struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Mm-hmm. And so, again, when I come to these sorts of texts, my first thought is not is to look for, are there any indications that they— um, Basically, okay, a, a better way of saying is if 1 Timothy 2.12, if I'm reading that wrong, and it actually means women shouldn't be pastors or teachers or whatever, however we define that, I should see uh, qualifications to the sort of language. Yeah. I, you know, I would expect some sort of qualification, um, and, but I don't see that here. And even uh, John Chrysostom, St. John Chrysostom, who's himself not a feminist at all, uh, calls these women the chiefs of the church or the heads of the church in his commentary. Hmm. Um, and Chris Austin's a gold mine for egalitarians because for someone who could be incredibly sexist yeah. would read scripture and be like, whoa, look at these women. This is incredible. We sh- they shouldn't do that, you know, kind of thing. Cause we know men were better, but whoa, look at these spirited women, you know? And so it's, it's really interesting to watch kind of the, him wrestle with the text. It's a very interesting, um, but these are two women who struggled beside, uh, Paul, beside Paul, not right. under him, not over him, beside him. Right. In the work of the gospel. So this is missional work. This is teaching, preaching, sure. missionary stuff, whatever it is. And it's a whole host of people with other co-workers, which probably presumes there's other women as well, because unless we think co-workers are, can only be men. And so I look at this verse and I go, okay, this, the ecclesiology here, we don't have a ton of ecclesiology, but we do have are people who are of the same mind in the Lord working together and participating together yeah. without, without reference to their gender. 
Um, and the fact that he tells them to be of the same mind means they probably had a lot more influence than a lot of other people because the fact that he has to mention, like, hey, y'all, like, you need to work this out and y'all need to help them figure this out. That's not how you talk to subordinates. That's how you right. talk to people who are on the same level as you. You know what I mean? Yeah, th this, 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 uh, you know, those verses in here and you talk about them brings to my mind. And I was going to do my best not to name drop Beth Moore, uh, Beth Moore during this podcast, but here we go. So. <laughs> Most, like Southern Bab right. most Southern Baptists are, that I know personally are mm -hmm. perfectly fine with her uh, you know, traveling and doing women's conferences and mm -hmm. things like that. She's expounding the scriptures, teaching God's word to God's church. That is mm -hmm. those people there are God's church, and she yep. is teaching them. That is the function of uh, a preacher, a teacher, whatever you want to call it. I don't care. Okay, so she's not their regular preacher or teacher at their regular local church where they regularly, physically, geographically go to on Sundays, but yeah. that's the function, and then most of them are okay with it. Um, yeah. I'm very moved by some of her preaching. I think she's yeah, actually... Of course. I don't yeah. agree with her, but I think she's a marvelous preacher. Yeah, I think I, I learned from her. Yeah, my point was just that there's this weird acceptance of that within mm -hmm. her denomination, which is almost exclusively complementarian. But it's like, mm -hmm. that doesn't seem very consistent with me. Now, mm -hmm. there are those who are consistent, and they pop up on Twitter, and you know, <laughs> pe people I, don't like them, yep. but at least they're consistent. They're like, no, she's when she's doing that, that's the function of an elder. That's the function of a teacher in the, in the church. So mm -hmm. she shouldn't be doing that either. And I'm like, eh, you guys are kind of jerks, but at least you're consistent. Um, yeah. So that just, you know, you saying that uh, these, these two women are serving alongside Paul in the proclamation of the gospel. They're obviously discipling people, teaching people. Um, I mean, that's just what preachers do. So I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a there's a disconnect there for me that I don't understand. Maybe they have an answer. I just don't understand it. Yeah. But anyway. And there are answers to it. Um, I personally don't find them compelling, but I'm not going to say that there aren't answers to it. Right. Um, but just for me, I, I look at that and I'm like, okay, I'm 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 not formally trained in logic or philosophy. Um, I know enough to get in trouble. <laughs> and. What when I but what I look for I look for coherence and consistency across epistles right that's what you do as a New Testament guy and as a theologian you're you're looking how does this work with this here are they in conflict are they in contradiction do they just need to kind of fit and then click and I think what I see in a lot of these instances you see unqualified praise of women across right. the Pauline epistles like Romans 16 Phoebe excuse me Mary um, Junia. Um, Julia and the the mother of someone who's not named, who's also a mother of Paul, you know, kind of stuff. Uh, the fact that he gives a shout out to someone whose name he probably forgot, you know, yes. but still, you know, and that just shows you kind of the idea of there are exceptions that Paul has to make for the sake of culture. And those are instances, I think, in the pastorals and in one or two other instances. But those don't appear to be his normal practice. Right. And while we need to take those seriously— um, there are instances where it might not be appropriate for a woman to preach. Yeah. Um, say maybe on a Muslim context where there is a, a, a genuine, uh, some a certain context might be genuinely patriarchal and it'd be for her safety that she shouldn't preach. Um, that's, but that's not something we do with joy or because scripture says, although we do so, we do so because of protection for her. Yeah. We just, that um, would just be doing that, you know, prudently, obviously. Yeah. You know, and we're, 
and respecting where people are too. So for example, I'm not going to, if I'm going to a friend's church and my friend is very complimentarian and he's a pastor and a great friend of mine, I'm not going to show up at his church and dem- and basically be like, um, I brought Beth more. Beth is going to preach your sermon today. <laughs> like a- aside from just being rude, there is this sense in which respecting where people are, and also as a Baptist personally, respecting conviction. I need to be able to respect your conviction, even if I fundamentally disagree. And I think, um, so there are times where it might not be prudent or might not be appropriate. Sure. Um, for example, um, I was talking with someone and uh, about, let's say, Al Mohler. Let's say Al Mohler decided, you know, I've been wrong about women in ministry. Um, across the board, we're now an egalitarian denomination. If he started firing local church pastors and people at Southern Seminary and North and Southwestern, he started just firing all the complementarians. I'd be like, whoa, no, that's, that's not how you do things. That's not how you treat me. That's not how you do things the, the Christ-like way, you know? Mm-hmm. And so if people need to change their mind, they change their mind, but you can't force change. And you never should coerce someone into disagreeing with you, or rather, I'm sorry, agreeing with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and another text, um, and I, I briefly alluded to it, and this is the one that got me really hard, was um, Romans 16. And it's um, just 16 verses of boring names, right? And, you know, Phoebe is mentioned. She's a deacon of the church in Cancria. Some people say servant. I'm like, no, that's not what deacon means. We have language for slaves and servants. This is not one of those words. It's not even root connected. It's just, it means deacon, which is something like minister or something like that in Romans 16 verses 1 to 2. But I see all these names, right? I see Mary in verse 6. It's worked very hard for you. I see... um, Oh, where, where is she? I, where, where's my girl? I just saw her. Tryphena and Tryphosa, these workers in the Lord in verse 12. Uh, Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, who's chosen in the Lord. And greet his mother, a mother to me also. Um, greet the brothers and sisters who are with these people. Greet Julia, uh, Nereos, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the other saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, and all the churches of Christ greet you. I read something like that, that entire thing, and I look at it and go, okay. If what complementarians are saying is true, I need to see that male headship principle here. I need to be able to see it consistently throughout. Because in it, in it, it's one of those things, uh, for example, Phoebe's not going to sit there and be like, uh, I shouldn't be doing this because Paul in five or six years is going to write the pastoral epistles where he tells me I can't do this. Mm-hmm. They just They don't really have that relationship. She has Romans and that's it, you know? And if Romans is building their ecclesiology and their theology, all they have is the epistle to the Romans, right? They don't have all these other epistles, you know? And so when I see all these women doing stuff alongside men where neither one is given preeminence, it's not, you know, men here, women here, or women here and men down here. It's just people working beside each other for the sake of the gospel. I just kind of go, that seems to be what Paul's ecclesiology and his pneumatology and his view of baptism, all that stuff brought together, seems to be that's kind of how he thinks. Yeah. And there are yeah. exceptions to be made, and there are to be wrestled with. But in Romans, when you have baptism, you have election, you have all these sorts of things, this beautiful epistle, and it ends with a greeting to men and women together who have served in the household of faith, who've probably put their own lives on the line, as it says for Priscilla and Aquila, risk their necks for my life. I kind of go, you know what? This seems to be what's normal and approved and also worked. We know there was a church in Rome probably because of a lot of these women. And we have this epistle written probably because there's women there to receive it and to learn from it and to apply it. And so theologically, I'm like, I, I can understand ha- 
interpreting certain texts in light of others, but using one or two verses to interpret literally everything in Romans and in Philippians and the whole of Pauline theology just, to me, doesn't strike me as hermeneutically wise. Yeah. Sure. Well, thanks so much uh, for sharing. We've gone on for a while here. I think I'm going to have to Yeah, my apologies. I get no, no, this is great. I, so. No, I've enjoyed this a lot, and uh, uh, you may have made an egalitarian out of me. I don't know if I should have said that publicly. Well, no, uh, te- I'm just go, kidding. Go and test what I said. Like, tell <laughs> yeah, me everybody, find me from. Yeah, yeah, everybody dig into the text. That's, you know— half the reason for doing this is to get you interested in God's Word and to dive in and uh, do some study and some exegesis for yourself. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. Um, If you like the episode, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, leave us a review, go check out Nick's podcast that we mentioned. I'll leave descriptions in the link below to those so that you can hear more from him and his wife and and, uh, his co-host on the other podcast as well. Um, Nick, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it, man. Oh, it's been a blessing. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been fun.